This is Dialogue with Drake Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. The fall sitting of the PEI legislature is opening on Tuesday, October 19th. And in true dialogue fashion, we will be launching our lead up to the legislature series. So, as folks remember from the spring, we will be sitting down with an MLA from each of the respective caucuses from the third party, opposition, and government. We discuss four major policy focuses and a series of questions with each. Today, we will be discussing poverty, police, COVID-19 economic recovery, and pay transparency. And with us to talk about all that and more is the Green MLA for District 23, Tyne Valley Sherbrooke, opposition critic for economic growth, tourism, and culture, fan of basic income, tree planter, and electric car enthusiast, Trish Altaz. Trish, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. Our first very important question for you is, how are you? Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. I'm a big fan, and I was really excited when I was asked to be a part of this. Um, I'm doing well. Uh, It's fall, and we've had some lovely, lovely autumn weather uh, to enjoy, which has been wonderful. And I'm excited to get back into the legislature next week. There's lots of work to do, and, and I'm looking forward to it. That's awesome to hear. So we'll go to kind of one of our first formal topics now, and and it's a heavy one. We're going to be talking about poverty. So almost a year ago now, the Special Committee on Poverty developed a number of costed models for the implementation of a basic income guarantee on PEI. The report from the committee was passed, of course, at the last fall sitting. So how do you feel the conversation on the ground has developed since this presentation to the House? Yeah, thank you so much um, for for asking this question. It was such a incredible thing to be a part of uh, that the special committee on poverty, and uh, it was a, you know an all party committee as as all you know, committees are in the legislature currently. Um, but to have uh, those you know really meaningful conversations and to get a chance to learn about uh, different models of basic income uh, and in you know what what has been learned from other jurisdictions and to really you know, engage in that and put forward a report uh, that had fully costed recommendations for Prince Edward Island was, was uh, quite incredible. And I think it's certainly very unique uh, to uh, PEI, something we haven't seen from, from any other province before. So I was really, really thankful to have uh, been able to be a part of that. Um, since then, uh, you know, I, I wrote a uh, submitted a written question over the summer to try to get a sense of where that conversation is now between the uh, you know PEI government and the federal government, because really the you know the main one of the main recommendations in our report uh, was that we really would need uh, to be working with the federal government to to move uh, a full PEI uh, basic income forward. And ideally, as as a pilot for a federal basic income program. Uh, so, response to that, the written questions I submitted uh, to uh, the Minister of Social Development and Housing, as well as the Premier, uh, to get uh, you know a sense of what where that discussion's at. And they did share um, one letter each that had been written to uh, to their federal counterparts. 
And the premier's response did indicate that there have been phone conversations as well. I don't know what those conversations have involved, but I certainly would be very curious to know. Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, it is it is a, continues to be at the forefront as a priority for for this government to negotiate with the federal government uh, to move this forward on Prince Edward Island. We know that there is support from the community here in PEI, and all three parties have again and again stated uh, that their support, uh, three parties in the legislature. Um, as well, what I find exciting is that there is support across the country for Prince Edward Island as a basic income pilot. I've been in contact with uh, a group of uh, MPs and former MPs and uh, leading economists uh, across the country who are working on advocating for Prince Edward Island as a basic income pilot and, and really grappling with you know, what, what that could look like and how we can move it forward. So I'm very hopeful that, uh, that this can continue, this conversation will continue and that we will see some progress soon. I know that as a, as a committee and as a legislative assembly, we've done that foundational work to show that PEI is committed to a basic income that will ensure that all Islanders can live with health and dignity, basic health and dignity and meet their basic needs no matter what. So I am very hopeful and will continue to be at, you know, at the forefront uh, of conversation in, in my mind and what, I, what, I, what I'd like to see more, more information about how that conversation is going. Awesome. And um, that's really good to hear, of course, that these conversations are going around the country, um, which leads us kind of to our next question is before and after the presentation of this report, uh, the government of PEI has requested the federal government to consider PEI for a basic income pilot project, as you mentioned. Why do you feel there has been minimum movement on this file on behalf of the federal government? Yeah, it's such a, a that is such a difficult question, and and one um, particularly since you know we have seen that there's support across the country for PEI as a basic income pilot, and you know even within the federal Liberal Party itself, uh, the party delegates delegates had uh, passed a motion in support of universal basic income. So, you know that we haven't really seen um, an, uh, a strong commitment from the federal government to move toward a basic income, uh, whether that's as PEI as a pilot or in some other form, is it's disappointing, certainly. Uh, my hope is that you know, it, the, we did have a federal election. Uh, there's been a lot going on. Uh, so now that that is, is resolved and you know, we're, we're moving forward federally as well, that we will see a resurgence of the conversation around basic income. And it would be, in my mind, the responsibility of, of our government here in Prince Edward Island to ensure that PEI as a pilot site for basic income continues to be uh, at the forefront of that discussion. So, you know, persistence, uh, if it is a priority of, of government, then they will continue to write letters and make phone calls and, and make those connections in any way that they can to continue advocating for Prince Edward Island, uh, for Prince Edward Island basic income. And I, I, um, I do hope as I said, that the fed, federal government uh, will take that on as, as more of a priority moving forward. 
Awesome. And, and certainly we hope so as well. But looking at things from a more local level, there certainly has been quite a bit of momentum uh, that has been gained around basic income on PEI. Uh, for instance, um, in the Premier's Council for Recovery and Growth, a summary report of public feedback, we saw that a basic income guarantee was one of the most recommended action items going forward for COVID-19 recovery. And this is, you know, across sectors, um, be it in public feedback, be it from sector champions, be it from the council itself. Why do you think this is? And what message do you think this sends? Yeah, and I wasn't at all surprised to see that, uh, you know, there has, has been strong advocacy on Prince Edward Island for a basic income guarantee for, for years. Uh, the PEI Working Group for Livable Income uh, has been, working within communities to share information about what a basic income uh, guarantee could look like and to really hear from the community what are you know the priorities for PEI in terms of what a basic income for PEI should be. So I wasn't surprised to hear that there was support and continues to be support in the community for this idea of a basic income guarantee. Uh, one of the things that I was at least surprised to see, or at least uh, semi, a little bit concerned, uh, was the language used in the recommendations in that report uh, around a basic income. Uh, specifically that it is some form of basic income should be pursued. And I'm not sure what exactly that means by some form. Uh, I want to ensure that we are uh, really understanding and appreciating the values that Islanders have expressed about what a basic income should be for Prince Edward Island. And I, I think I, I will be watching closely to see what happens next in terms of our economic recovery and where a basic income fits in terms of the vision coming forward from this government. And we'll be chatting a little bit later about kind of the COVID recovery plan, but uh, staying on the topic of basic income for now, the province announced on October 1st that they were moving forward with kind of a targeted basic income model that would provide 625 people with financial assistance to top up up to 85% of the market basket measure. How do you find that this pilot project that is being rolled out compares to the models that were proposed to the Legislative Assembly? So I do want to start by saying that it's always good to see an investment in ensuring that people can meet their basic needs. So it is good to see um, that there has been further investment toward this. However, I do have concerns about the framing of this as a, a targeted basic income. Now that framing in and of itself is, it's, it's a bit of an oxymoron and that a basic income is not intended to be targeted. It's, it's uh, the idea of a basic income is that it is accessible to everyone. Um, and that it would be uh, the conditionality for that. Uh, it, it wouldn't be based on, on sort of a complicated uh, way, complicated range of, of how someone might access those supports. So this particular um, announcement of 625 people being able to access this financial assist assistance, it's unclear as to how those individuals were chosen and what exactly the conditions were that they had to meet in order to access this funding. Um, and that is a very difficult and unfortunate way to approach this. 
One of the things that is really great about a basic income is that it removes the stigma around poverty and the stigma around um, needing support uh, to ensure that you can meet your basic needs. It removes that idea of blaming and shaming those who are living in poverty and really empowers everybody to live healthy and well. So when we look at targeted programs like this, while they, you know, it is good again to see that there is some support being provided, it really misses the mark in terms of what a basic income is meant to do, which is uh, ensure that everybody would have access to supports if they need them, and that uh, there would not be uh, many hoops that are needed to be jumped through, uh, and we wouldn't need to be uh, stigmatizing or deciding who is or isn't deserving of support. So really, I don't think it's fair to, to say that this is a basic income. And it does bring me again back to the language that was in the, uh, the Premier's Council for Recovery and Growth report around some form of basic income. And I most certainly hope that this particular program is, they do not consider that to be, um, you know, that we've checked the box on basic income because this really just barely scratches the surface uh, in terms of uh, what is really needed to, uh, to implement a basic income for all Islanders. So many wonderful points there. And it's interesting you mentioned kind of the challenge with framing it as a targeted basic income because as Sweta and I were preparing for this interview, um, she had wrote a question pertaining to this specific area and the announcement on October 1st, I was like, wait a second, PI's going to have basic income? When did this happen? What rock have I been under? Like, I know I'm in Ottawa, but I'm not that removed from things. And, you know, sure enough, we, I was like, oh, okay, wow, this is the case. Like, I, I totally miss this. But it kind of speaks to the fact that it's not what was recommended by the, you know, tripartisan support of the committee. And it's also, um, you know, as you say, creating more stigma around those who need it most and accessing it. And how was it selected that it was that particular number? And also further to the point, I think a major challenge with the fact that the committee had unanimously supported a recommendation for a federally supported program. Now that PEI is going ahead without the federal government, what bargaining position are we now in to say um, we need the federal government to come in when we're operating the program already? You know, if I were in the federal government's perspective, I would say, you know, why should we support this? You seem to be doing fine on your own, uh, and which was one of the major challenges with the Ontario project at the time. So I'll be interested to see how that impacts our ability to speak with the federal government on this moving forward. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. Um, I think, you know, language is important, first of all, that uh, to, to call this uh, a basic income is is certainly not it's it's not accurate, um, but what you know the big difference there are big differences between what uh, what this program is and and what happened in Ontario around the basic income pilot as well uh, because that was a pilot where um, you know there were uh, there was a lot of thought into how the data would be gathered around um, that pilot it was not a, a you know a program that was uh, you know targeted in the way that that this you know particular program is there there's so many factors there that 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 uh, make it different and it was you know one of the things that was most heartbreaking to see was um when the the Ford government was elected in Ontario and the the basic income pilot was cancelled 
after only one year, uh, it was an incredible loss in terms of what we could have what more we could have learned about a basic income. They were able to, you know, glean some information from that that first year. But uh, what a shame uh, that when uh, the there was a change in government that that entire pilot was uh, was simply discarded. Now, one of the benefits um, we can point to here, though, for PEI is that we do have all party support for a basic income guarantee here. So assuming that all parties are, you know, being honest and transparent about their stance on a basic income, it shouldn't matter um, whether there is a change in government in the future or not, which is a, a really important point for the federal government in terms of wanting to um, to collaborate with PEI for a basic income pilot, that if there's a change in government here, you won't see a change in commitment toward a basic income pilot. And, um, you know, I think that's that's one more reason why PEI would be a fantastic place to start implementing this type of program. Looking forward to seeing how this moves forward in the future, and, and hopefully uh, this isn't kind of the end of the conversation, it's the start of it. We're going to shift gears now on to police. So in April 2021, you put forward amendments to the Police Act. This included two key amendments. The first one, extending the time available to put forward a complaint with the police from six months to 12 months, and the second, to allow the party responsible for investigating a complaint to hear complaints plants outside that 12-month period if there are good reasons to do so and they're not contrary to the public interest and of course these amendments passed. Our first question on this, how do you feel these amendments will affect the complaints process moving forward? So I'll start by telling you a little bit about how I ended up bringing this forward in the legislature. So it was actually a constituent who uh, who came to me with her story and her experience that sparked my interest in looking into this issue further. So this individual had experienced, um, had engaged with police during a mental health crisis that she was experiencing. And beyond, it took more than the six months for her to be in a place emotionally uh, and mentally where she was able to go through the formal complaints process. Uh, she felt that during that incident, there was something that happened with the police that she needed to file a complaint. Um, however, when she was ready, it was too late. That six month hard cutoff, which is what we had before this legislation passed, prevented any investigation of that incident. So that's very concerning. It's concerning, of course, for the individual who experienced the incident and uh, is, is will have no you know, justice or recourse as to you know, looking into what happened and, and finding out how we can ensure that uh, an issue doesn't happen again in a similar way. It's, it's also very difficult for the police officer who does not get a fair uh, process, due process, to uh, investigate the situation because we, we will never know if, the, if, you know, what actually happened or if there was uh, um, a, a, a contravening of the code of conduct. Uh, so it really, that hard cutoff really doesn't serve anybody. So that opened the question for me, well, what does this look like across the country? So we did some research in our office and, and took a look at other jurisdictions. And we found that PEI was in fact, one of the last provinces to hold to this uh, six month hard cutoff for uh, filing a complaint. As well, the uh, federal RCMP were at a a 12-month uh, 
you have 12 months to file a complaint and that you could also file a complaint beyond that 12 months if needed, which is what we, we now have after the legislation passed. So that added another layer of complexity because here in PEI, uh, we have our municipalities, which are governed provincially under the Police Act, and they were at a six-month cutoff, whereas uh, other areas that are, are not municipally um, policed that are uh, under the RP RCMP's jurisdiction, individuals in those areas had 12 months or more. So it really, there was a question now of fairness uh, within the province in terms of access to a fair and open complaints process. So, so that was, um, those are a few of the things that led us to want to bring this forward as well. Just a few months before we brought this, these amendments forward to the legislature, Nova Scotia, which was uh, um, uh, another province that had held on to that six month uh, hard cutoff for complaints for a long time had changed its policies. And that was based on an incident that had occurred with uh, a woman who had, um, ex had, been the victim of sexual assault, and she um, later found out beyond the six months that months that there may have been some mishandling of evidence in her case. So again, she she in that case she had been at first unable to file the complaint and had to go through um, a very uh, challenging process to make that happen. So basically, Nova Scotia had just changed their um, their limits on this. So we were really the last holdout and. Uh, how it will change the process moving forward, really, it just means that there won't be that arbitrary cutoff. Uh, should someone feel that they need to file a complaint, that something wrong happened and they would like to have it investigated. And, you know, really that the, cut, the cutoff of six months just, it didn't serve anybody. Especially where there was such inconsistency with the rest of Canada and even mm -hmm. the RCMP jurisdiction, you know, definitely made sense. And, um, you know, at the time you would express that um, the complaints process is, of course, you know, one piece of a bigger puzzle when it comes to the Police Act. And you uh, kind of stated that it would be beneficial to do a more fulsome overhaul of the Police Act in the future. Is this something you're still interested in pursuing? So we, we certainly do need to have a more uh, comprehensive review take place of the Police Act. So the last review that was conducted was in 2017. And we know that there were recommendations from that review that have yet to be fulfilled. We are currently in the process of a midpoint evaluation of, of the Police Act and, and, uh, and that review it was due to be completed in May, and this was another written question I, I submitted. Um, I really do enjoy being able to submit written questions uh, because sometimes you need to ask something outside of the legislature and it allows us to do that. Um, so it's a tool that I, I do use often. Um, so I submitted a written question on um, for an update on the midpoint evaluation. Uh, and the response to that was uh, due uh, to be um, given by September 30th, and I've yet to get a response from the minister, unfortunately. So uh, in terms of next steps for a more comprehensive review, uh, it would be good to see where that midpoint evaluation is at and what the, uh, what the findings are of that evaluation. 
certainly since 2017, we've seen um, a lot of, of changes and a lot of new um, awareness and issues that have been brought forward, for example, um, through the Black Lives Matter movement that have highlighted um, the challenges and issues around um, inequality and, uh, and access to justice uh, for uh, minority populations. So there's, there's a lot has changed since 2017, and we really do need to take a, a good look at that act um, and, and in, in light of that and uh, do a full review that involves consultation with groups like the Black Cultural Society, Black uh, BIPOC Usher, um, and others that really, um, you know, we need to hear what their experiences have been and what, they're, what they would like to see or what they need to see moving forward so that everybody can feel safe and secure in their communities and within their engagement with police. So it is my, you know, I, I am waiting the information about the midpoint evaluation and I fully expect, and there certainly should be a more comprehensive review very soon. And you've made several good points to us, you know, the primary one being that folks have been asking for a review of, you know, how police functions and how things work. And this isn't just something we see on PEI, this is something we've been seeing, you know, Canada-wide or even across the world. So uh, hopefully you get your, the results of that midpoint evaluation very soon. Uh, now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about COVID-19 economic recovery. Um, we've kind of touched on this before, but on September 28th, uh, the government released their COVID-19 recovery plan, which included recommendations from the Premier's Council for Recovery and Growth, as well as sector champions. Um, on September 29th, you wrote a response to this report and stated that the absence of recommendations specific to women in the long-awaited report from the Premier's Council for Recovery and Growth is stark. So our question to you is, what specific action items would you have liked to see included in this plan? I think when we're doing this type of, um, you know, broad engagement with uh, community and consultation, it's very important to have clarity on the questions that we are starting from. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one of the things that really struck me about this report, as well as the uh, entire sort of process throughout would be that there just seems to be a, a lack of focus on the perspective of workers uh, and, and what, what more we can do to support workers to engage more effectively in, in the labor market and what are the barriers uh, that workers are facing. Um, one of the things that we, we have seen um, is that from COVID-19, we have seen that women's uh, labor force participation, women's employment decreased more drastically than men's and it has taken longer to recover. So women have, have, have not been re-engaging with the labor market in the same way that men have. So that's a really important point. When we look at things like the, the um, challenges uh, in, um, in finding workers in, 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 in labor uh, that we hear across many sectors right now, uh, we are really missing the mark if we're not critically looking at what are the issues that workers are facing to engaging in that work. Uh, and recognizing that women are having um, are are facing challenges to re-engaging with the labor market, it really needed. We really need a strategy specific to to women's labor force participation, to women's um, uh, growth and recovery in the economy. Um, it's not only uh, important for for women and for children and families to ensure that uh, that women are able to. Uh, 
um, to engage in, in meaningful paid employment uh, at a living wage. Uh, it's also important for our economy because we are really missing out on, on a, a, you know, half of our, our population of workers that um, we could really be supporting more effectively to, to, to engage in the labor market. So it was disappointing for me um, not to see that focus in the report. So some of the areas that are, you know, important to women that we would like to see more uh, focus on would be, you know, childcare, for example. So we know that women are more likely to be primarily responsible um, uh, for the care of, of children. So having access to affordable and uh, safe and, and you know, uh, really accessible childcare and really good childcare is, is an incredibly important aspect of women's labor force participation. As well, um, access to paid sick days. This is a conversation that you know, we've tried to bring forward many times in the legislature that really, you know, having access to paid sick days is critical during COVID most certainly, but there's also a gendered component here and that women are more likely to need to take time off from work because they are more likely to be responsible for childcare and elder care and facing other um, uh, issues and challenges that may require them to take time off of work. So paid sick days is really, and access to paid sick days is, is also a, a gendered issue. And, and lastly, I want to point to housing. There's really no discussion of the impacts of, of the crisis we are facing in housing. And this is important for men and women, um, but I do want to point out, you know, for those with families, I mean, I hear from constituents who are struggling, who, you know, don't know what they're where they're going to be able to find a new place to to live if their current rental situation is no longer tenable for whatever reason um that are you know young families who are unable to purchase their phone first uh, home um housing is an ongoing stress that really can be a barrier for or or an additional weight for those who are you know trying to make it every day and just, you know, work and, and, and continue on with their lives. And, um, you know, if you don't know that you're going to have a safe and secure place to live in the future, it's, it's very hard to, to be, um, healthy and well in your day-to-day -day life, including your work. So that there was no discussion of housing at all or recognition that that was a key priority in that report was, was also quite, um, disappointing. Fabulous points on, on a lot of the intersections of the impacts of COVID-19 on, on all facets of life. And you mentioned the specific impacts on women. Hold that thought. We're going to get back to that as we're going to switch gears right now and talk about pay transparency. So in the upcoming sitting of the fall legislature, you will be tabling the Pay Transparency Act. What is this act and what motivated you to put it forward? Yeah, so, uh, you know, again, when we, it, it's all about sort of what is, what is the starting point that we are coming from when trying to create policy and programs that are going to, um, you know, work toward that goal. So if you start from the perspective of looking at the experience of workers and what can we do to ensure that our PEI workplaces are the very best workplaces that they can be for, for Islanders to engage in that work? How do we ensure that our workplaces are um, as fair and equitable 
as possible. So starting from that question, again, you know, we did a little bit of research in our office and looked at what are some ways that we can uh, really move toward a more fair and equitable um, you know, society and in particular in, in our workplaces. And we came across, you know, this, um, the idea of, of pay transparency legislation, which is something that has, you know, it passed in Ontario, though I believe it's yet to be proclaimed. Again, I will point to changes in government that may have had an impact on that. Um, but in other jurisdictions across the world, implementing this type of legislation has been shown to decrease gender pay inequality in particular in workplaces. Um, you know, we often hear that PEI has one of the smallest gendered pay gaps in the country, and, and uh, that is, is true. But there are some things to point to here that are a little bit more concerning. So uh, we've seen, there's indication that there may be a shift happening, uh, particularly for full-time, 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 full-year workers, um, where that gap is actually increasing. Uh, which is it would be different from what we're seeing across the country, and certainly not a trend that we would like to see continue. Um, for for young workers, for young women who are you know who are moving into the labor market, um, when I think about our educated young women who are you know graduating from college and university, um, deciding where you're going to work and 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 what province you want to live in and where you're going to build your life, you know, if we can really ensure that. Um, you know, PEI workplaces are fair and equitable places to work, then we, that's really one more asset we have to keep people here in Prince Edward Island. And I think that's a really important thing for us to be focused on as well. So basically, you know, we, we, we drafted up a piece of legislation around pay trans transparency that um, uh, for the PEI context and, and opened it up for public consultation. So we have been engaging in that discussion, which has been incredibly valuable. There were really you know, four components to that proposed legislation that we had drafted. Um, so one would be that uh, employers uh, would be required to post a salary range in the job posting. Um, that's something that has been shown to be very important for, uh, well, for transparency, obviously, and, and openness, um, but also that, uh, you know, that women are um, not disadvantaged in that Men often are more, uh, they more aggressively uh, bargain for higher pay. Um, women are more likely to take a lower pay. These are just things that have been found, you know, in the research. So if there is a set range within which, you, you know, you know that that job will be um, compensated at, it really takes away some of those, that uncertainty and levels that playing field uh, for, for women. As well, um, the legislation would prohibit any reprisal uh, from from an employer that, um, or that an employer would not be able to uh, to in any way um, punish someone who would be seeking information about pay within their workplace uh, or talking about pay with other workers in the workplace. So that is that the, that type of conversation. There could be no reprisal for those uh, employees who were engaging in those discussions, and that's really, you know, about worker empowerment and being able to uh, have the information so that um, you know they they can be aware of what what might be going on within their workplace in terms of uh, pay inequality. Uh, not having information is uh, one of the the biggest challenges to sort of to addressing these types of issues, um, and uh, you know this was one in particular that. In consultation, people were really surprised that uh, that, that doesn't doesn't exist um, in the law already. So, 
So that was another component. That's another component to the legislation. Um, as well, um, it would um, prohibit an employer from asking during an interview or a prospective employer from asking during an interview about someone's past pay. Uh, this has been shown to be really important because women are often underpaid in their previous jobs. So if they're asked about their previous pay, uh, they might, it, it is uh, more likely that they will be underpaid again in their next job because they have just stated that they were um, paid a lower amount and that might, has been shown to continue in those sorts of situations where it can have an influence. So to just remove that variable out altogether where an employer would not simply not be able to ask that in a job interview is, is, uh, is something that would also help um, address some of those issues around inequality. The last piece that was in our consultation draft was around reporting requirements. And this was certainly the most complex uh, part of the legislation. When we sent out the consultation draft, we expected that there would be a lot of discussion on this. And, and to be honest, we didn't have all of the answers ourselves. That's one of the good things about consultation is it does give you an opportunity to learn from others and to, um, to further the discussion. So in Ontario, the, uh, this component around reporting, there's for businesses that have 100 employees or more, they are required to report on uh, gendered pay uh, inequalities within their workplace um, yearly, and that information is made public. So we, we, um, we had included that in the draft, knowing that there are some complications here because PEI is so small. So we don't have as many workplaces that would fall under that category, first of all, of 100 employees or more. Uh, and also, um, you know, if we were to lower that amount, at a certain point, you do run the risk of sharing information uh, indirectly that may identify individuals, which is not the goal of, of this legislation. So there is a complex balance there. Um, and I do believe it's something that is important for government to uh, really delve into moving forward. Because again, if you don't have accurate information, uh, it's very hard to understand what is really happening in terms of gendered pay inequality, uh, particularly within different sectors. And um, there are factors that make it difficult to really get a good sense um, here on PEI because of our small size and as well because we have such a large uh, public service uh, um, that is proportionally um, uh, more a women-dominated workforce uh, that is, is better paid than some other uh, jobs. So that does make it difficult um, to really pull out some of that information in a uh, province-wide statistic. So looking at this will be important moving forward. However, in terms of the immediate uh, legislation coming forward, uh, we did decide after consultation and after speaking with the department that we would remove this component from the draft uh, for at this time. Um, so the, it will just be those first three components that will come forward uh, as well, rather than it being a standalone piece of legislation, which is what um, happened in Ontario. Uh, and what we thought would be the best choice here at the time, because we are also going through an employment standards review, um, uh, we are going to be putting forward those three components as amendments to the Employment Standards Act rather than a standalone piece of legislation. And one of the things that I had discovered in consultation again, 
uh, you know, with the department is that the scope of the current employment standards review is such that if that is not part of the existing legislation, it will not really be part of the discussion of the review. Um, so actually including it in the Employment Standards Act now is really the best way to in ensure that this is a discussion moving forward also. So for all those reasons, we've, we've made a few changes to the um, to the tra pay transparency legislation that, that I, I will be, you know, and I am intending to bring forward. We're just waiting on the final draft now. Um, but again, that's what consultation is all about, right? That's why we do it. We don't do consultation just so you can send it out there and say you did consultation and, and not make any changes, right? ideally. So um, so I'm really happy with the, the place that we've landed on with this, and I'm looking forward to the discussion in the legislature on it as well. Wow, so much to consider uh, uh, again there. Um, we're going to talk about consultation here in a minute, but we're going to jump back to the wage gap piece um, because uh, you had stated in September 3rd, 2021, a blog post for the PEI Green Caucus, quote, a recent statistical review found that women on PEI are more likely to have higher levels of education than men and that two thirds of students enrolled at UPEI are women, yet PEI women earn less uh, than men on average, end of quote. Um, and you had mentioned some further examples too uh, as well in the first question, but um, digging in a little bit more, how do you feel this pay transparency would help address some of those gaps that we just mentioned? So I do think it's very important that we look at how we can, you know, uh, retain uh, these in incredible women who are, you know, graduating from our uh, post-secondary institutions and you know there are more women uh, who have higher levels of education uh, than men um, on Prince Edward Island, and yet women still do make less than men overall. So this is this is a very important point. If if our focus again is on um, making sure that our workplaces are the best they can be for workers and are as fair as equitable and equitable as possible, as well as you know. A, Focus on retaining our young, you know, workers who are bringing, who bring so much, so many, you know, skills and, and energy and new ideas to our workplaces that we really do need to consider how we can move forward in such a way that it, it will actually um, change that dynamic so that we have the most, I would love to be able to say that, you know, we are doing everything we can as a province to ensure that our workplaces are as fair and equitable as they can be and that, um, you know, young women who are um, uh, moving into the labor market can know that PEI is, is a place that is, uh, is concerned about uh, gender pay inequality and that we will be uh, making that a priority moving forward. So I think this is, it's not going to resolve all of the issues, but they're, you know, based on evidence we've seen in other jurisdictions, the components of the pay transparency uh, legislation that we're putting forward are things that do make a difference uh, to close that gap. And I think that we should be, I would like us to be you know, proud as a province to show that we are making those steps to make our workplaces the best and most fair and equitable as they can be. 
Yes, and I'm sure too in your folks' process with the uh, consultations, you have been hearing from people with lived experience who, who perhaps have um, maybe been on the receiving end too of, um, you know, that wage gap challenge. Um, and with that, I know you mentioned that you've received feedback from the department, um, but with your folks' consultative process, what types of feedback did you receive from community and, and more specifically perhaps workers? So yes, so again, you know, there was uh, some surprise that some of these, uh, you know, um, components were not already law so that, um, you know, protecting workers' rights to discuss pay in the workplace or to seek out information about pay scales in the workplace. Uh, those are things that are, are generally protected by unionized or within unionized workplaces, but certainly not uh, within um, non-unionized. So there's certain, I got we did get some surprise that that wasn't the case um, as well. You know, gen a lot of support for recognizing that gender pay inequality is an issue and uh, that bringing this forward or bringing forward concrete, you know, legislative changes that will help move us in a more equitable direction. We certainly heard a lot of support uh, for these uh, for what we're bringing forward. The, uh, the challenges that we did here, the questions around the reporting requirements, as I mentioned, really led us to a place where we didn't feel we could make a, a decision on, on what, you know, what the number of employer employees um, uh, that a business would have, um, which size of business would be required to report. We, we didn't feel like we would be in, able to bring that forward in a fair way at this point. Uh, there needs to be further uh, exploration of that and really doing the consultation um, did highlight that for us and, and it was actually something we, we we had thought might be the case but wanted to open that discussion and I think uh, bringing that to the forefront has been valuable in and of itself. So you know the other thing I did hear was again from from young workers who are frustrated in particular with job postings not having a salary range. Honestly I think you know, a lot of businesses may not realize that if there isn't a salary range posted, the workers just won't apply at all. This is what I'm hearing. So leveling that playing field, being transparent and having that information up front, I think will have many positive benefits uh, for workers and for businesses. Um, you know, one of the things we've seen recently is that there, there are more businesses that are recognizing the value of paying a living wage. And that that um, not only has positive impacts for individuals who are able to uh, to to buy healthy food and to to know that they can pay their rent and you know to live healthy and well. Um, so for our individuals and communities, uh, certainly a benefit uh, when someone is paid a living wage that the money goes back into the community. They are you know this we know all of these things, but. Also for businesses, when they are paying workers a, a living wage, um, you know, with benefits, those are workers that they're going to retain longer. They're going to have less turnover, and you're going to get workers who are really committed and engaged to uh, to staying in that job and, and doing a good job. So it's it's a really positive thing for everyone, and I think more and more businesses are realizing that. And um, I'm I. Being transparent about pay is, is an important component of continuing that discussion as well, I would say. 
And, you know, as you were answering to Emma's earlier questions about, you know, the gender pay gap, um, I was also thinking about the youth aspect, which you later brought on. So that's an awesome point, because we find that among young grads, especially if a job doesn't have a pay, you're not sure if it's worth putting in the effort of, you know, customizing your cover letter or going through that interview process and that whole preparation process. Uh, so certainly this pay transparency uh, amendments, they, they're overdue and we're very excited to see that come forward in the fall and the conversations that will come from that. Now, we can't, call, we, we can't talk about the fall sitting without talking about the capital budget, uh, which is presented typically in this sitting. So what are you most looking forward to for this capital budget? So one of the things that has was very disappointing was to see underspending last year in both healthcare and housing, two areas that again and again we hear we are in a crisis in, in both healthcare and housing. So I mean, I will keep my answer fairly short on this one is that, you know, significant investment in healthcare and housing, that is what I want to see. Uh, in housing in particular, investment in public housing. Uh, we really need to see meaningful investment here. And it, it's not a commitment that we've really seen from this government. And certainly the longer it goes on, the, the more of a crisis we are in with housing. And I, I'm just gonna keep that short. I, that is the main thing. Those are the main things that I will be looking for. Um, their priorities, they've been long, long standing priorities for our caucus. And I, I certainly hope we see a real commitment to, uh, to investment in those areas and that it's followed through on. Yes, I think uh, a safe bet would be to, uh, to bet on the fact that housing and healthcare will be topics of discussion this fall. And as you say, hopefully uh, integrated into the capital budget, uh, but we shall see. And I'm sure if they're not, again, the debate will be there and, and we'll hear all about it. So really looking forward to the opening of the fall legislature. Now we're going to shift to our most serious aspect of this show, which is the beer panel. Now, many listeners know that this has evolved over, um, I guess we've been doing this for a year now. I was going to say years, but it's only been a year. Well, happy one year anniversary dialogue. Um, but we, we've kind of had this evolve over time that it's transitioned from looking at anything from local beer, as PEI has so many options, to local recipes or local businesses, or just different things that we like to shout out and, and give particular spotlight to. So as our special guest, Trish, um, what would you like to recommend to Dialogue listeners today? So first of all, congratulations on one year of, of uh, Drake and Debu. Uh, I am a big fan of, of your podcast, uh, as I, I may have already mentioned. So I knew this was coming. So um, one of my favorites is, uh, of course, Moth Lane. So sort of the go-to there would be uh, The Answer, which is a really great IPA. But I realized that, you know, with life being so busy and, and things, you know, COVID and all the things happening, I actually hadn't been to uh, Moth Lane Brewery in a very long time. So I decided I need to do some, a little bit of research uh, in anticipation of, of today's uh, podcast. And yesterday I took a drive up um, to Moth Lane Brewery and um, to see what, what sort of new things they had going on there. So um, I'm going to tell you about a couple of other other choices there that I learned about as well. So 
They have a pumpkin spice ale right now, which is uh, called Out of My Gourd, which was was really, really, really something. So I had to try a little sample of that. And they had um, kind of a, a sugary rim that they put as well. So I don't know if you could um, replicate that at home the same or not, but it was it was a really, that was a really nice one. So I, I would recommend trying that, but that's limited time only. So um, don't miss out. But my favorite new uh, beer they have there, and I apologize, listeners, I'm going to swear now, and I'm sorry for that. It's called Shits and Giggles. That's the name of the beer. And it's a nice light lager, and I really recommend trying it. Now, um, it is a really great experience to go up to Moth Lane yourself, and it's such a beautiful location right by the water. And I definitely recommend you know people to go take that take that trip and, and go check it out. If if that's not possible, uh, folks should also know that they're available. Um, their growlers are available every Saturday at the Summerside Farmers Market as well. Uh, so you know if, if you're wanting to try Moth Lane beer, that's another option for you. So I thought I would that as well. Also, one more small thing about that, Backwoods Burger, which is in, in my district in Tyne Valley, fantastic location. They also serve Moth Lane as well as many other locations, you know, on the island. But um, there's other reasons to go to Backwoods Burger too, because it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, the Dam Burger there, uh, it just, it's, I don't know what, what they do exactly, but it's so delicious. And, uh, you know, I, I, I find myself often thinking about how can I when do I get to my next damn burger at, at Backwoods Burger? So yes, it's it's very good. So those are my recommendations. That's awesome. Two, I mean, very staple, three very staple, you know, recommendations between Moth Lane, Summerside Farmer's Market, and then um, the Backwoods Burger. So very cool. And have to agree on the Moth Lane experience. Um it is quite the trek. When you think you're lost, keep going. You'll get there. And honestly, it has probably one of the best views in all of PEI uh, across that kind of bay inlet there looking off into the ocean. Like, it's it's amazing. On top of that, some of the best beer on PEI. So um, kudos to you for also doing the research because that's <laughs> putting in the effort. I You love to see it. Um, <laughs> it wasn't exactly a hardship. <laughs> All right, Sweta, we'll, we'll switch over to you. What do you have for recommendations? Um, I think I have a beer that has been recommended a few times already on this podcast, and it's the Hollywood IPA from Low Note Brewery. Um, it's been a favorite for a while, and I still like it very much. Uh, but I also have a second recommendation, which is not, which is not a drink. Um, it's actually the grilled cheese from the, from the gallery in downtown Charlottetown. Um, the, the grilled cheese doesn't come with a side of tomato soup, but it comes with tomato jam on top, which I had never seen before. So it's really nice. It's my go-to order whenever I go there. So those are my two recommendations for the day, though now I feel like I should take a drive up to Moth Lane because the trees would be beautiful this time of year. <laughs> they are, absolutely. And I guess we're over to me. Um, as much as I wish I could enjoy this grilled cheese, because I am a big fan. <laughs> Listeners, if you're out there, please enjoy it on behalf of me. Um, but as I am in Ottawa, I was reflecting. I was like, do I give another Ontario beer recommendation? And I thought not. But what I will recommend is actually 
not a beer, not a business, not any type of thing at all. Actually, the Saturday Night Hoedown on CFCY 95.1 FM. And now the reason why I recommend this is listeners might be thinking, wow, that's such a bizarre thing for you to recommend. Don't they just play old music? In fact, they do. But it is, I think, a staple in PEI culture. And there are very few radio shows that are parallel across Canada. And I actually had the opportunity to play it for friends of mine who I was with yesterday evening, uh, who are from the Niagara region. And they had never heard, of course, of the hoedown. And I said, well, lucky for you, it's only 6.30 in PEI. We can tune in right now. So any Anyways, we ended up listening to it, uh, not only the songs, but we heard the shout outs and as well the uh, commercial jingles. Um, so it was, a, it was a full experience, but uh, you forget how I think um, just interesting the hoedown is and what you get to hear and, and peek into different Islanders' lives through the shout outs on the show. And anyways, I think it's such a fun experience and nice to listen to while away from home. So. I would recommend listening to the hoedown to folks. It's a good time. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if they play it at the Moth Lane on a Saturday night. I don't know, just, just to take a guess. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Trish. We've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, thank you so much th- for your thorough answers and, and just your, your thoughtfulness in this and agreeing to be on the podcast. Best of luck with the upcoming sitting of the legislature. We hope everything goes well and, and that uh, you folks are staying safe as well. Well, again, thank you so much for for having me uh, on your podcast. It was uh, just a pleasure. And uh, I I can't wait to tell everybody that I got to be on Drake and Taboo. It's like I'm just I leveled up in coolness today. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on, Trish. We really appreciated it. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss with us today, Trish, in advance of the opening of the legislature. Mr. Shane Pendergast is the mastermind behind our opening and closing music. If you would like to see Shane in action, you can catch him at the Jack Pine Folk Club on Wednesday, October 20th from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Poor House. And that's all we have for you today, folks. Tune in next week when we continue our lead up to the legislature series. This has been Dialogue.